and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a 1988 comedy directed by Robert Zemeckis. Based on a novel, it combines noir mystery tropes with references to classic Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons set in an alternate world where cartoon characters live alongside humans. Bob Hoskins stars as Eddie Valiant, a cynical private detective who is hired to investigate the wife of slapstick cartoon star Roger Rabbit, who is then accused of murder. So this was a very fun one. This is a listener request from Elena on Patreon. Thank you very much. I had seen this movie before. Morgan watched it especially for this episode. There's a lot going on in this movie. It's just like a really effective comedy and it arrived at like precisely the right time in film and history. So like if this came out now, we would all be like, ugh, another movie that's just like referencing Disney classics. But in 1988, the uh, cinema world was very different as we will be discussing in this movie. Um, in fact, Roger Rabbit had quite a lot of influence over kind of the reawakening of passion for classic Disney and uh, Warner Brothers cartoons in the 90s. But yeah, this this movie, lots of fun parodies of noir films um, and an incredible eye for slapstick comedy and just storyboarding from our friend Zemeckis who made so many great movies in the 80s and so many bad movies in recent years for mysterious reasons. Who knows what happened? Well, what happened is that he became obsessed with motion capture technology and made things like the Polar Express which I have not seen. No. But, you know that's what's going on there. I mean, he's an interesting figure. I've not seen very many of his films. I've seen this. I had seen this actually when I was like a very young child and remembered basically none yeah. of it. And this is, de- I mean, it's technically suitable for kids, but I think it's definitely better if you're a grown up. Yeah, it's, I would not call this a children's movie. No. I mean, you can watch it, but like, that's not the intended audience. I think I saw it. I would have been at a, like a friend's house or like a, like a party or something it definitely wasn't at my house my parents would not have let us watch this as children and I my only memory of it was being really disturbed by Jessica Rabbit <laughs> like she really freaked <laughs> me out I was like five or something I think oh, okay, just like yeah. the the sex stuff I was like I don't like this her boobs are too big like what is going on and I think probably the cartoon thing plus the real person element I was like what is this like I don't I like mean, this the at villain all is pretty disturbing the kind of spooky villain who is played by uh, the mad professor from back to the future um Zemeckis also directed back to the future and Romancing the Stone and Death Becomes Her which is a great movie and Forrest Gump which I've never watched and will never watch So he had this amazing run of very big sort of mainstream comedies and dramas in the 80s and early 90s. And then sort of more recently, as Morgan said, we're in the Polar Express zone. Right. So I've seen Romancing the Stone a couple times because a screenwriting professor of mine in college used it as an example of screenwriting technique. And like, it's pretty good. It's pretty racist. It's very dated, but like, it's fine. It was his big breakout movie in 84, I think. It's sort of like an action romantic comedy with uh, Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner and it was a huge hit and it sort of propelled him into more like larger projects and then I have never seen Back to the Future amazingly um, and I obviously have seen Forrest Gump because I am an American person over the age of I don't know 27 I don't know what the cutoff is you were like legally obliged to see Forrest Gump like we watched it in school like I was about I to mean, say did you watch it on like a VHS tape in a TV that was rolled into a classroom because in my mind yes. that is how you watch yeah. Forrest Gump <laughs> yeah otherwise I would never have seen it but we watched it like so when you take AP classes 
we had like a month plus of school after that point because they the way they schedule them if you're in the northeast there's still a bunch of the school year left and so we watched like saving private ryan and west side story and forrest gump and one other thing we voted as a class on what films to watch and some people apparently voted for forrest gump i have no idea um and at the time i remember just being like whatever because i was 16 i feel like if you watch that movie now you would it would just be like you're brain would just melt out of your ears. And I've seen Allied, his film with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard from a few years ago, which is just the most boring movie I've ever seen in my life, which is a movie with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard about spies in World War II. And it is mind-numbingly boring. How does one manage it? it, Amazing. But he's someone who has always been really interested in, like, the technical elements of movie making and in like pushing that forward, which obviously is a huge part of this movie, which we'll talk about. But his recent career, he did the motion capture stuff in several movies, which did not work. I mean, he was really fascinated by it, but audiences did not really respond. He made that film The Walk with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which was about Philip Petit doing the walk between the Twin Towers, which was apparently horrific, but like the actual depiction of that feat was very impressive. This sounds absolutely like a case of James Cameron brain. Yes, completely. And then he did Welcome to Marwin with Steve Carell, where a lot of the movie is like the characters like rendered as dolls, I think, like in his sort of fantasy. It's based on a documentary of this guy who had PTSD who kind of did this to cope, but like they rendered it in like an animated way, kind of. He's now doing The Witches based on the Roald Doll novel, which I assume will have some kind of similar special effects situation and he obviously is just like fascinated by doing things that are really experimental on a um, visual effects level and in this movie which is what we're obviously focusing on today it really works because there's a specific reason for the story that he's doing it and it's not alienating but his career around 2000 just completely goes off the deep end because he just gets caught up with it, which is unfortunate because even though, you know, Forrest Gump was an abomination, he obviously made movies that were really good, including this one, which is like a masterpiece. I mean, it's an unbelievable I mean, this movie is also like, as well as it being really kind of visually complex, because obviously it's like a pre-digital movie that combines animation and live action, which obviously that has been around for a long time. Like some really famous examples are Mary Poppins, obviously, Song of the South, which is the infamous, very racist Disney movie that they hid away in the vault for decades, um, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and Space Jam. So this movie was made with, like, the actors performed to imaginary nothingness. You know, they were they were giving performances where, you know, they were talking to someone who was off, off the edge of the set, or they were interacting with sort of puppets, that sort of thing. There was no green screen involved, and then later on, the animators would like do hand-drawn cell drawings and then it was all sort of composited together and they had to make it look like these people were interacting with cartoons. So there was like a tremendous amount of sort of physical performance going on here, especially from Bob, Co- Bob Hoskins in the lead role. And it's like an amazing accomplishment from an animation perspective. But like the amount of sort of visual comedy and also like really funny sort of silly one-liners in this movie is just like great. It's like a really funny movie and it's kind of interesting to look at the resume of the two writers because uh, so it's written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman who are a writing duo. They like, they do all their movies together. And 
they clearly put like a lot of research into like classic Warner Brothers cartoons and that sort of thing for this because as well as there being like lots of references and cameos it's just like stylistically very much in that zone like they get you into the right mindset at the beginning of the movie by starting off with an actual Robert Roger Rabbit cartoon where it's just this sort of violent goofy sort of uh, visual comedy skit and then it sort of pans out to show that the cartoon is actually like performing this on a physical set with a human director but um these writers like their other movies just it's not very good like they did like wild wild west they did how the grinch stole christmas like whatever yeah i mean you never know obviously this was all planned in that like very precisely in advance because it had to be so storyboarded but it's always hard to tell how much is coming from the screenwriter versus the director right yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is Zemeckis here, because while he has kind of gone into an area that most other people don't really like very much recently, you know, his movies in the 80s are widely regarded to be amazing. And I've not watched Back to the Future in many years. I bet there was a lot of elements of those movies that didn't age well, but they are visually, like, very, very entertaining. Yeah. I mean, this film is an interesting example of, like, I think it is a great work of cinema. And, like, you know, as I said, it's basically a masterpiece. But I think I don't find it massively emotionally resonant. Like, that's not really what it's interested in doing, right? And I do think that's a flaw of the movie. But it doesn't matter that much because what is happening on the screen is so unbelievably engaging that you're just like, oh my god, like, this is just incredible. And I struggle to think of many examples of films where you're just like the imagination that went into this to come up with what I am seeing is just like mind boggling in a way that actually pays off and is just like absolutely thrilling to watch. I mean, it's, it's like Buster Keaton. I would, I would say. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the times people say things about like that, about something like Avatar which we often reference on this podcast. And they're like, oh my God, he just came up with all this stuff. And like, it's so amazing. And obviously James Cameron spent a lot of time thinking about all the shit on it, you know, whatever the fuck that planet is called in that movie. But like, it's not interesting. I find it visually garish and the story's bad. So like, yes, it's technically impressive that they did all the CGI for that film, but like the end product to me, is a failure. Whereas in this film, I watched it and I was like, I technically, like, theoretically kind of understand how this worked in terms of, like, the animation and the live action stuff, but I really don't understand how they did it. It's wild to me that it was possible. And the, like, level of energy of how, of the humor and, like, how much is going on with the animated and the real characters interacting with each other like it's a, such a frenetic pitch the entire time that you're just like oh my god these people just had so many ideas and they just shoved them all into this movie <laughs> and but it's but it's just thrilling you're just like oh my god how how did this happen and the fact that it's got there's so much kind of meta stuff going on in a way that is not obnoxious because nowadays obviously there are like so many movies which are referencing pop culture but in this you know you've got stuff like at one point, like, Roger Rabbit's hiding from the villain, and the villain finds him by doing, like, the shave and a haircut knock, and he knows that a cartoon will have to reply to the shave and a haircut knock. And, like, at one point he's handcuffed, and he can only get out of the handcuffs if it's funny, because it's, like, it has to, stuff is kind of governed by, like, punchline logic. 
And it's just such an interesting way of thinking about that. Like the fact that this is based on a novel is so weird because it's so hard to just envision this in, in prose format. Well, it, so the novel is called Who Censored Robert, Roger Rabbit? It was written by yeah. a guy named Gary K. Wolf, And apparently it was quite, it was much darker and more vulgar. And it was about like cartoon strips as opposed yeah. to um, like characters in the movies, which makes sense because it wasn't a film. And I have never, I mean, I've never heard of this before I was researching for this episode. And I don't know if there were, I feel like there must have been cartoon strips within the text of that book, but I don't know because I've never picked it up. But it was published in the early 80s and immediately someone at Disney was like, we're optioning this and turning it into a film. Like, yes. And then it kind of was in development hell for some time because no one could quite figure out how to do it. And Zemeckis very early on sort of put himself forward and said, I really want to make this movie. But he wasn't anybody at that point. He'd had two early movies that had been bombs and they were like, no thanks. And they... I think kind of tried to get a bunch of directors on board and didn't really have any success. Terry Gilliam, uh, Gilliam turned it down and then later deeply regretted that. He said he basically just was too lazy to deal with the animation stuff, which frankly I can understand. And then they, if you go on Wikipedia, the list of people that they offered the lead role to, the lead human role, or like considered for it, it's like every famous person <laughs> in the 1980s I don't know how many of them were actually offered it, but Harrison Ford and Eddie Murphy did turn it down. I mean, can you imagine Harrison Ford dealing with this? Like, it's... He, I mean, no. no. <laughs> he would be great, but he just would have no patience for the shenanigans. Um, and apparently they desperately wanted Bill Murray, who would have been really good. And he famously is... I think this probably was the period of time where he had just, like, left Hollywood after the Ghostbusters situation where I think they like weren't paying him, didn't want to pay him enough and he was like well I'm moving to Paris for five years and taking classes at the Sorbonne and um, I'm not speaking to anyone and apparently was like crushed after the fact that he had not been in this movie and it was like well you didn't check your voicemail so he's got some weird situation where he either doesn't have an agent or he like only takes messages by carrier pigeon at dawn you know it's like you have to give him like a typewritten letter that's given yes. to his office front or some shit like that I mean Sofia Coppola left messages on his voicemail for like years to get him to do Lost in Translation. I mean, it was like, it's she's very, very difficult to get a hold of. So it's really his own fault that he was not in this film. When I read that about Bill Murray, I did wonder if he then later took the role as Moses Jones, because he was like, God damn it, I missed out on doing this like animated live action movie. And then he did as Moses Jones as, instead, which is just silly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that Bob Hoskins is very good in this. It's an incredibly difficult task because he's acting against nothing for most of the film. And I think there's, I mean, he was a successful actor in the 80s for sure. He was nominated. He's a like British actor. I think he did yeah, a lot I mean, of stuff. I kept stuff. thinking he's doing like a full accent because he is primarily, I mean, he's done like a really wide variety of movies and he also, he did the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is very funny. But um, he is like, he was like a cockney. Like, a lot of his roles were, yeah. like, Cockney geezer. Yeah, and he was nominated for an Oscar in, like, the late 70s, I think. And I think there's some benefit to having someone who's not, like, a mega, mega star in the role because it adds to the sense of, like, this actually being, like, an alternate universe and timeline, right? But I do think that it probably would have been better if they had managed to get someone who was a huge star for that part because... He just doesn't have, he's a good actor, but he doesn't have like 
the movie star charisma that a Harrison Ford has, which is no, you know, shame, right? Like very few people do. But the sense of, and that character is written pretty slimly. Like they give you some basic backstory information about him, but it's a pretty stock part. Like he's, he's a, a gruff detective with yeah, a sad, dark past. Down on his luck. And by contrast, he's interacting for the, most of the movie with Roger Rabbit, who is this just like, completely over the top zany like I mean it's crazy and the whole point obviously is that they're foils to each other right like the detective is very staid and this cartoon figure is like just crazy amount of energy but um I did find myself thinking especially in the sort of second half of the movie that if they had had someone who was like a little bit more of a movie star with more like natural screen charisma that probably would have helped a little bit but that's a minor quibble and obviously, again, the task is so difficult because you're acting against nothing. And you don't think about that watching the movie, which is to his no. credit, big time. Like, you don't, he looks like he's actually interacting with this thing that doesn't exist. I mean, it, it did make me wonder about, like, what the slapstick uh, audition process was like, because a lot of actors cannot or have no experience with slapstick. And he has to do, like, so much physical performing in this. And physical performing often with a thing that's not there. <laughs> So it's not just that he has to be interacting with it on like a dialogue or like emotional level. It's literally that they're like, he's like being dragged around by this thing that doesn't exist, which obviously they have to have had something, you know, to do that. But I just, again, you're watching this and you're like, how was this possible? Like, I do not understand. The only other movie, I guess I did see Bed Knobs and Brimsticks at some point when I was a child, but I don't remember it at all. But so the only other one that I've seen that really does anything like this is Mary Poppins, which obviously has that wonderful sequence where they, you know, dance with the penguins and whatnot. But that's just such a different kind of interaction, yeah. right? Like they just have them kind of next to them, um, which obviously it's made much earlier. But the degree to which there's a physical relationship between the animated and the physical and the real characters and spaces in this movie and the camera is moving around them to to like encompass all of the motion is just unbelievable like it i do not yeah. understand how it was possible i mean it also like watching this really kind of makes me very frustrated with what is termed adult animation like in the us at the moment because right now there is like a massive influx of adult animation, which is basically animated sitcoms, right? And they're like, I mean, obviously there are some which are very critically acclaimed and the acclaim is usually kind of geared more towards the, the writing than the visual style because it's not really about the visuals, which is very much how sitcoms work as well. Like there's not that much visual comedy involved in American mainstream comedy at the moment. There's a really good kind of YouTube video by, I think it was Every Frame of Painting, which we'll link to in the show notes, which kind of illustrates how Edgar Wright is amazingly good at visual comedy. And like, there's always so much going on in the frame to make you laugh as well as dialogue and how kind of comparing that with how most mainstream American comedy doesn't really have much of a visual element. And that's definitely the true, true of kind of adult animation, you know, and it's kind of the opposite of the way early American animation was because it was such a kind of visual forward medium and like nowadays we do think of kind of cartoons as more childish which is why people are using the phrase adult animation but kind of in the pre-mainstream Disney era most of these cartoons 
would be aimed at adults. So like, you know, in this we've got got like a Betty Boop cameo. So Betty Boop is from that kind of era where these cartoons, they're shown in cinemas. They're full of like quite dirty jokes. There's a lot of like drug references. They're often quite violent. And generally they are kind of, I mean, might be watched by kids, but mostly they're aiming at like an adult audience. And it would be amazing to kind of see more of that in the mainstream sphere. Well, obviously a lot of this has to do with just like digital versus hand-drawn animation yeah as well which isn't to say that digital animation can't be visually striking like obviously adventures in the spider-verse was an incredible visual accomplishment but um i've been reading uh william goldman the great screenwriter's book adventures in the screen trade uh recently which was published in 1984 so just a few years before this movie and um it's a sort of classic book about Hollywood. If anyone is interested in Hollywood, I recommend it. It's very readable and fun. And he talks about Bambi a lot, which he had seen. It must have been, Disney must have re-released it around the time he was writing it because he went with his family to see it. And he talks about, um, I don't think he says superhero movies, but like cartoon comic book movies versus like movies for adults. And he's basically like everything the studios are making are comic book movies. (laughs) I was like, interesting. Not in the sense that they're literally based on comic books, but like the logic of the film is that like everything's going to be fine at the end and the heroes will win and whatever. Versus Bambi, which he was like, this is actually for adults because it is like totally heartbreaking. It like doesn't sort of compromise the sort of emotional stuff. But what he also pointed out is the animation of that movie is like completely staggeringly just like unbelievable. And this is before obviously digital stuff because it was in the 80s. Um, but he said that the, most of the animation that was coming out then... I mean, it's then, painted, isn't it? The backgrounds are painted. Yeah. I mean, I saw that on a print at Museum of Modern Art a few years ago and I hadn't seen it since I was a child and I was just like, this is one of the best movies that was ever made. Like, it is... I Like, I recommend Bambi to all of you listening at home. It's an unbelievable film. But what he said, which I thought was interesting, was that like, you know, the animation in the 80s when he's writing it, he was like, it's really bad now. And all my kids were like, wow, Bambi's great. Like, this is so much better. So this is before the Disney Renaissance in the 90s, which we're going to talk about. But it seems to me that this film, they put a huge amount of effort into making all the animation, like, very, very technically yeah. accomplished. Not just I mean, in the sense So that- the situation is, it's very much to be kind of like budget, but also having, you know, you have to have like a massively skilled base of employees to have a ton of experience and know what they're doing and are given kind of artistic freedom, which is basically the opposite of what we see currently. And it's kind of, it's kind of the same conversation that people keep having kind of on a loop about CGI and the way that everyone is like, I hate CGI. And we in this podcast have railed on many occasion against bad CGI and blockbusters, but it's not like the concept of CGI that's bad. Obviously it's the fact that in the vast majority of big Hollywood blockbusters, you've got thousands and thousands of visual effects shots and they are not being done with like care and skill. They're being done by probably multiple effect studios around the world. They're having to rush to get stuff through. There's no visual care taken. So it's not like they're saying, oh, we're making an animated movie and we really need to care about this. They're saying, oh, we have to get these visual effects shots to put in the background of the real movie, which is like a very different attitude, which is why you get like some films which look absolutely stunning. And it's only the it's like the ones where the director actually cares about that stuff and the budget is allocated correctly. And you have people in-house who know how to do it. So like Star Wars is the most obvious example. Like no one looks at the modern Star Wars movies and goes, ugh, 
CGI is so bad. They've managed to kind of trick people into thinking everything's live action, but obviously like those movies are all CGI. And it's just like they're done really well and they've got really amazing production design and they're listening to the in-house team and that sort of thing. And we don't have the infrastructure now to do that with hand-drawn animation. Like it's now that's happening. I mean, obviously when I say hand-drawn, like it's hand-drawn on a computer now, but like that industry now exists in Japan. It doesn't exist in the US. And the reason why so many adult animated cartoons are just like visually unappealing and dull is because the TV industry is massively trying to expand adult animation very fast at the moment. It's going to happen even faster very soon because we're going to be able to, we're not, they're not going to be able to film as many live action shows. And the pool of talent they have is people who have all just like come up on South Park and Rick and Morty and are used to doing like a very flat, limited style. And they're having to like hire a bunch of junior animators to just work in that style to make a TV show that comes out really fast. So, you know, it's the opposite of Bambi. (laughs) Right. We should also talk about the use of Disney IP in this movie, which is really interesting and would never in a million years happen today. This movie is way too adult. And also Disney does not let anything outside its grasp. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just so interesting to watch because I think the first character that shows up is Dumbo? Maybe I missed someone. Certainly the first yeah, big person. Yeah, I mean the first major character. Like, cause yeah. you have basically they kind of, Dumbo shows up and they have like a reference to uh, Fantasia and then there's a sequence where you have like Bob Hoskins walking around a Hollywood back lot where all of these kind of characters from Fantasia are like auditioning for stuff. Yeah. But it was immediately disorienting to me to see Dumbo floating around in this movie. I was like, what? And then it became clear that that was part of the film, was that all these other characters were going to show up. And I do think you could do this movie without Disney's participation, because the central characters are all invented for the film, or t- you know, taken from the novel you know, for the film. But it certainly adds a lot to the movie to have them. Like, Mickey Mouse is in this movie multiple times, which is extremely surreal. And the thing that really struck me, or the scene that really struck me, was when the detective character goes to this sort of speakeasy to spy on Jessica Rabbit, who they think is cheating on Roger Rabbit. And (laughs) Donald Duck and Daffy, right, are like performing at the speakeasy and it's like kind of like a like dirty you know act like they're not dirty but like they're boozy and like you know slamming the pianos on each other and I just thought oh my god Disney again would never in a million years allow any of this and then immediately after that Jessica Rabbit comes out and does this like vamp number (laughs) but it just speaks so much to the place that Disney was in the late 80s versus now, right? Like, they were not doing that great at this time. Obviously, they're still a huge corporation, but, like, this is before the big hits start coming again. Yeah, I mean, at this point, this was kind of the period where they were focusing really heavily on uh, theme parks, and also they were, like, re-releasing classics. And then the kind of the Disney renaissance happened around 
like it happened basically kind of as this film was coming out. So this definitely would have like precipitated that forward and also kind of inspired more interest in Warner Brothers cartoons because this movie was like a huge hit. But Disney was kind of already on the cusp of like returning to the realm of like animated children's movies because The Little Mermaid came out in 1989 and then you have this like big run of really successful animated movies throughout the 90s when we were kids and that kind of created the foundation of where they are now in this kind of massive empire of child-oriented media and like Disney princess merchandise and that sort of thing. Watching that scene with like Daffy and Donald Duck was so interesting like I mean both just from the general perspective of seeing how like Disney's attitude to this uh, kind of intellectual property has changed but also just philosophically the way that we as viewers have been completely brainwashed into accepting the idea of certain corporate intellectual property being walled off in certain areas and like accepting the concept of canon as something that we need to like officially recognize which is just so kind of twisted and capitalist and nonsensical in such a weird way to look at stuff which is essentially viewed as like fairy tales that all children should enjoy like it's so grotesque so it's like if you are someone who likes superhero movies which is now like most people you know 20 years ago people who weren't comic book nerds would have just been like well are we gonna have like a movie that has like iron man and superman in it at the same time And then someone who was a comic book nerd would be like, no, they're by different publishers. There's like this huge rivalry. It's kind of like a nerdy thing to know, right? Whereas nowadays, the idea of that crossover happening, we have just internalized the kind of corporate possessiveness of these characters. Like the fact that they belong to Disney or Sony or whoever so much that people are having like casual conversations about like corporate mergers to see which superheroes are going to be in which movies. And it's like, these characters... Like, the people who created them are not profiting from them anymore. Like, it's just such a weird, unpleasant situation. Yes, totally. What's so kind of funny about watching this now is that obviously this belong- this movie belongs to Disney. It is on Disney+. Plus. That's not how I watched it. You can rent it from another streaming service for like four bucks. But it is on Disney+. Plus. This movie is a Disney film, right? But paradoxically watching it, it feels like a kind of rogue operation, even though obviously yeah. they were the ones who said, like they bought the rights to this thing and they said, yes, make the movie. Because Steven do whatever Spielberg, who was like Steven Spielberg, said, please. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Spielberg is the person who is, I mean, obviously he didn't make the movie, but like he's the person with the power who got this thing done, right? And this idea of like these characters who are so familiar to us in just like the cultural imagination just sticking them in a movie in this way again like this movie was made with the a total agreement of the corporate power structure but it does feel like oh you could just like do that like wouldn't that be cool if, if copyright didn't exist in the way that it does which i think was a little bit of the appeal of spider-verse even though again obviously that is completely a sanctioned property and is only playing in the sort of one corner of this ecosystem. But the idea of like putting all of the different Spider-Man characters into one movie felt so much more exciting and just like creatively interesting than fucking like another Avengers movie, right? But this movie specifically, because it is also so body, and does it feel like the people at Disney were paying attention? Like that's what really is yeah. the sense you get. There was definitely they were like, no Whatever. sense of like reverence. It's kind of, it's playing to an audience of people who understand 
the jokes of this type of cartoon, but it's not like, oh, here's this like exciting cameo from Mickey Mouse. No, he just shows up. But also it's like Mickey Mouse is obviously the funniest mascot of all time because no one in the entire world has ever given a shit about Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Well, and if you watch like the original Mickey Mouse cartoons, it's like him like beating up his wife and like doing like, you know. And it's all like the origin point is like quite clearly minstrel shows as with a lot of those characters, the imagery. (laughs) So we should recommend here. I mean, I'm sure many people listening to this podcast will already have listened to this, but if you haven't, and we'll link to this too, Karina Longworth's show, you must remember this, the season she did on Song of the South. Great, great season. I mean, her stuff is always great. Her recent series on Polly Platt was also my favorite thing she's done. But for this episode, Song of the South, she talks about all kinds of things related to that movie, but specifically about like Disney in the 20th century and the sort of the progression of Disney and its sort of corporate situation, which was really, really interesting and plays into some stuff that we're talking about, although she doesn't talk about this movie. But um, certainly the situation in the 80s was just so different than what we think of now. And anything that we, meaning you and I, would have remembered because of when we were born and the status of those films when we were growing up. Like, that was, those are the only movies that we watched when I was a kid, as I have said before. I mean, we watched some other animated movies from other studios also, but like, Disney movies ruled in my house. Like, that was it. And I had no sense of like, the corporate history of the company, because like, why would I have cared at the age of seven? But the idea of them as a company that had had like problems in the past or like, I mean, they almost went bankrupt multiple times to people of like our generation and younger. They've totally erased that from the cultural imagination because now they just own everything. Yeah. And it's like the kind of the, the public image is like they own the most popular blockbuster franchises and they are the Kings of childhood nostalgia. So they've got like a stranglehold in everyone's hindbrain. But the way Disney has actually succeeded as a corporation is through the normal sort of like petty evils of capitalism and like being awful to employees and so forth, but also by consolidating their intellectual property. So like they now have complete control over all these characters who are branded up the wazoo. Um, So this kind of happened just on the very cusp of that mindset completely taking over. Yes, it's really like the last gasp. And I'm sure was made because they were not doing as well and we're just like yeah okay like whatever (laughs) we should talk about the sort of last chunk of the film i mean we haven't talked as much about the noir stuff in the movie part of what makes the film so effective is that it's about this world where cartoons exist but the movie itself is basically also a cartoon right even though it is so much of it is live action like visually it works on cartoon logic And thematically, it's like a very straightforward noir plot that takes itself absolutely seriously. So the plot is like a detective gets hired to investigate the sexy wife of a celebrity. He thinks that she's cheating, but it turns out it's something else. The guy that she was maybe cheating on turns up dead and then Roger Rabbit is framed for that murder. And then the detective kind of gets sucked into this thing where he figures out there's this kind of... Uh, this legal dispute where someone is trying to get hold of the deeds to Toontown and like build a freeway because that's what you know was happening in Los Angeles in the 1940s and uh, kind of the the evil corporate villains are going to take over Toontown (laughs) ironically enough 
I'm glad we've explained that at minute 40 of this podcast. Yes. <laughs> good. I do often wonder what our listeners like, because it's like sometimes we do such a good job of explaining what a film is about, but I, I would love to know what our listeners thought this episode was about if they're one of the people who didn't watch Roger Rabbit right. and are just listening to us talk about like corporate mergers for half an hour. <laughs> uh, that's what the people come for. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, this plot of the movie is really elegant in the sense that it's quite simple, but I mean simple in a positive sense like it's it's yeah. elegant like it just yeah. it all makes sense and the what they're interested in is clearly more the technical stuff i really like that when when the bad guy at the end is like i'm dismantling public transportation and putting in a freeway i was like this is my shit like yes cars are bad which they stole from china the movie chinatown which i great steal from the greats like that's makes sense but the sense of like the tunes as an oppressed people is like fine. It's not super deep because again, that's not really what the people making this movie are primarily interested in. I think, although the bad guy played by Christopher Lloyd is very effective because he's a scary, scary man. I, I did like the kind of casting detail of uh, when they were trying to find who would make when they were like casting for the villain. They were like, oh, who should we get? You know, get Christopher Lee in and so forth. And like Tim Curry auditioned and the producers found him too scary. (laughs) So they were like, let's go for Christopher Lloyd, who is scary, but he's also kind of goofy. And I'm like, can you imagine? I mean, Tim Curry, witnessing any audition from Tim Curry would be such an experience. That man gives a performance and a half. (laughs) I cannot fathom. But before the sort of big climactic thing at the end, the detective goes into Toontown and then he is the only real life person and everything is animated for like 15 minutes. And it's wild. It's totally surreal. And that's the point where the film completely, which has already been quite manic and high energy, goes fully just like (laughs) over over the edge. It's really alarming as well because like, uh-huh. I don't know if they intentionally made the anime. I mean, I'm sure they intentionally made the animation really over the top, but like, it feels doubly over the top when you've seen like you spend most of the time of the movie in like a kind of fake 1940s setting where like gravity functions normally, and then you're in this like horrifying hallucination. <laughs> yeah, and again, watching it, I didn't find this. Like, I was definitely engaged with the story and like wanted to figure out what happened and see how it all resolved, but. It wasn't that I found it massively emotionally compelling. But no. when you get to that stuff, you're just like, people thought this up <laughs> and executed it. Like, <laughs> what? Um, which, for that to be my primary takeaway and for me to feel that positively about the movie is a huge compliment. Because it's, it shouldn't work as well as it does and feel like primarily a technical accomplishment, right? Like that should be a backhanded compliment, but it really isn't. It's that good and really funny. If the humor didn't work, then it would be a different story, right? Then you'd just be like, oh yeah, pretty like impressive animated thing. Interesting to look at. But like the fact that it's so funny and also so visually accomplished is really impressive. I do think it lags a little bit right at the end. But, you know, villain showdowns always have a little bit of a... We've done this, you know. But honestly, the film that it most reminded me of, in a way, was LA Confidential, which I've only seen once many years ago, and is obviously a more serious picture than this. But, like, (laughs) it has a similar kind of thing of, like, 
being one of these, you know, old Hollywood studios and being very much like the noir pastiche thing. And I wish that they had done a little bit more with the studio angle, though obviously that wasn't the main interest of the movie. Like when he goes to find Jessica Rabbit and take pictures of her to like prove that she's having an affair and they're like, well, I guess you're going to have to divorce her. I was like, please, the old studio heads would not advise that. Right? Like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but on the whole, yeah, I just was like completely boggled by this and it was a less sexist that I was expecting. So congratulations to them also for that. Good job. Uh, so thank you to Elena for requesting it. Uh, you can request episodes at our Patreon. Um, we have several of those coming up in the coming months, which we are very excited to talk about. Thank you to all of our subscribers, as always. That's at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Next week, however, we will not be doing a Patreon request. We're saving those up. Um, we will be talking about the new Charlie Kaufman movie, which is dropping on Netflix this Friday, called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. There's a trailer up already. Looks weird. And the early reviews from critics who've already gotten to see it are all pretty glowing. So I'm quite excited about this. It stars Jesse Buckley, great young British actress, and uh, Jesse Plemons, and Tony Collette, and various other people. So um, yeah, can't wait to watch a movie about you know existential horror and dread. It'll be at the opposite end of the spectrum from this. Be good. And then finally, the week after that, our much-delayed Lord of the Rings episode. <laughs> yes, yes. So <laughs> At long last. We know we've all been waiting. We will record it. <laughs> so that will be what we have coming up in the next couple of weeks. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. I also just made an account on Letterboxd at ML Davies as well. So you can add me there. Many years of films uh, logged belatedly. So if you want to see what I thought about things, that is available. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.